We're going to study God's word. So if you've got a Bible with you, uh, open it up to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and guests who are with us this morning, it's such a joy to have you here. We've been walking through this letter, 1 John. This was written by the Apostle John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the Gospel of John. He's walked with Jesus by the time he's writing this for some 60 years. And he's talking to these disciples in the church about what it means to remain. It's one of his favorite words in 1 John. Remain in him, and he has remained 60 years since the resurrection, and he's still, he's still believing and holding fast to the truth and loving Jesus. So we want to lean in and listen to what this apostle has to say about what it looks like to live as a disciple of Christ. Um, so the biblical teaching known as the doctrine of assurance basically states this, that all who come to Christ in faith are his forever, are kept by him forever, are declared just and righteous in his sight on the merits of Christ and him alone. And we, we access this, we apprehend this declaration by faith and faith alone, not by works. So he never casts us out, he never leaves us or forsakes us. That's the doctrine of assurance. It's a beautiful doctrine. The great uh, prince of preachers, Charles Spurgeon, said this is my favorite teaching in the Bible, the doctrine of assurance. We, we were singing about it a moment ago in that song, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me is basically the doctrine of assurance set to music, given poetry and lyric and melody. Some of you know I've had occasion to share bits of my story here and there, but um, doctrine of assurance didn't make sense to me, wasn't my understanding or my reading of scripture until I was 24 or 25 years old, which meant that from the time of age, whenever it was, maybe seven years old when I came to faith in Jesus, until nearly 20 years later, my eternal status was up to me. In my own mind, I thought, um, God's thumb up or thumb down today depends on how well I did today. My spiritual performance today either leaves me in or leaves me out of his kingdom. And I had no idea what spring in my step would come when I came to see in the New Testament that that God, through Christ, accepts me on the basis of faith alone, justifies me, declares me righteous in his sight so that my eternal status isn't dependent on my spiritual performance. It's not dependent on my perfect performance at all. It's dependent on Christ's perfect performance in my place. That is glorious good news. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. So in one sense, we are saved by works, Christ's works. We are saved by obedience, Christ's obedience. And, and I hope even now, before we even get into this, that you can sense the truth that if that is indeed what the scripture teaches, that feels, that feels like rock underneath your feet. That feels unshakable. That feels awesome. And I hope that we see today that it's the truth. It doesn't just feel awesome. It is awesome. And it's awesome because God said it and he revealed it in his all-sufficient word. He wants his children to know that we're his. That's really the point of 1 John as a whole. That's why he keeps using that word 
Know, to know, I want you to know your sins have been forgiven. You know the Father, that you do have the anointing from the Holy Spirit, and he's not leaving. So John has that major burden as a pastor to, to get that message across to God's children, shaken as they are in the first century. So follow along if you would. 1 John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19. This is how we will know. There's that phrase again, we've seen it many times. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, so that's where he wants to take them, So if that happens, we have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. So there's going to be a kind of audience participation moment here as we get started. And I want to see if you can finish this sentence out loud. It is, I'll acknowledge, it's a generalization about men. So I'm just acknowledging that on the front end, but I want to see if you can fill in the last word. I'm going to say it, the sentence nice and slow so you can prepare your one-word response to this sentence. Ready? Here we go. Men are often out of touch with their... Okay, so there was more than one answer, which is ironic because I thought there was one answer. Um, so apparently I'm already out of touch with some things, but... I I think I heard in the room feelings. I think I heard emotions. Those were the answers that that I was going for. I I don't know when this exactly happened, but my sister's six years older than I am. And so when she went off to college, maybe it was something, maybe it was a class she took at LSU, maybe it was a book that she was reading in college, because when she came back for college break, she was analyzing us. My, my brother, my older brother, and me. And that was the first time, I was probably 15 years old when I heard this phrase. And it was my sister saying, Matt, I think you have a prohibitive conscience. And I'm like, a proho what? Like, I have, I have no idea what any of that means. And she's kind of analyzing me. And, and so there was some frustration, okay? Like, do I even know myself? What does that even mean? It's a typical guy thing, right? We're out of touch with that. We don't know our own feelings. And it's about that time, 14, 15, 16 years old, that help arrived in the form of a new trend. It was an old trend, but it was re- having a resurgence uh, in New Orleans at the time, and it was, it was called the mood ring. <laughs> Some of you remember the mood ring's early release, kind of the first wave of mood ring people, and then I would think I was the second wave of mood ring people, but you would see mood rings all over Grace King High School campus. People were wearing these mood rings. So the, the upshot is it only cost you 10 bucks to figure out how you feel. Thanks to the invention of the mood ring. Now, I, I couldn't get one because my mom said they were demonic because uh, <laughs> there's some kind of weird thing going on in those crystals. It's like, I don't know if it's a crystal ball, or, but you're not going to have one. But I had friends who had them, and they were trying them, and they were putting them on, and they're like, why are you so tense? Because the mood ring says that you're tense. That color means tense. Um, I even looked it, up, <laughs> I looked it up this week on Google, and I found the exact ring. I don't have a picture of it, but I found the exact ring that I remember seeing in my high school class with my friends. And then I found the, the color code key for what each of the colors meant. And, and here's what it was. This is straight off the website next to the ring that I saw. Slate blue, happiness, love, and joy. Blue, so if the ring shone blue, relaxed, at ease, and calm. Blue, green, somewhat relaxed. 
Green, average reading, not under stress. Yellow-green, troubled and uneasy. Gray, anxious, nervous. And black, tense, nervous, anxious, harassed, or ring broken. I love <laughs> so what if, what if there was a ring that actually worked? And if we all put it on our way in to the room, and we were all wearing the ring, and the ring displayed, the color of the stone displayed on the outside what you feel in your relationship with God. So if you feel confident in his grace, you're standing on Christ the solid rock. It shows a certain color. And then if you're feeling shame before God, you feel dirty, you feel unfit for his presence, it would show a different color. And then it would show yet a different color if you felt guilty, if you felt condemned by God. And it's that last color that John sees glowing in the church. He sees guilt that's being hidden by the people of God, but in their hearts there's this raging storm going on of self-doubt and condemnation and a loss of assurance and a lack of assurance, and John sees it coloring their lives and their witness and their faith. This is in your notes. Our text highlights a trial in which God is the judge, the defendant is your assurance, and the prosecutor is your own heart. The judge is God, the defendant is your assurance, and the prosecutor is your own heart. Hence, the title of today's message is God's Remedy When Your Worst Enemy Is You. And this passage, I would submit to you, speaks in three voices. Number one, the voice of condemnation. The voice of condemnation. You can see that in verse 20. Look there with me. Verse 20. This is how we will know that we belong to the truth. So it's about assurance. This is how we're going to know something. And we'll reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. Whenever our hearts condemn us. So the heart is prosecuting a trial against the believer. And the heart is saying guilty. The heart is producing evidence that you're not a Christian. You can't have assurance. Now, let me just say, this might seem like an odd way to start, but I think we need to start by saying something that seems really counterintuitive if we're going to talk about assurance, and it's this. Sometimes our guilt is telling the truth. Sometimes our guilt is telling the truth. You know, sometimes... um, in the church or in Christianity, in an effort to be grace-driven, in an effort to be gospel-centered, Christians can be dismissive of guilt feelings that we have. But just remember the, remember the gospel that you heard on day one. Remember the simple message of the gospel. The gospel doesn't say that God saved us because we were such lovely people. Right, so just remember we were guilty. We, we've sung, the church has sung this song for centuries. Guilty, vile, and helpless we. That's not heresy. That's gospel truth. That's absolutely true. Now, we don't put a period on the sentence. 
or else there's legalism. But if that is true enough, guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless lamb of God, was he. Now we're getting to good news. Full atonement. Can it be? Hallelujah. What a savior. But nowhere in there are we denying what we deserve from a holy God. Our sin is real. Our sin is offensive. Psalm 51 is a classic text of repentance. It gives the Christian vocabulary of what we can say in the presence of God when we're guilty. Not when we feel guilty, when we are guilty, when we have done the wrong thing. We've sinned against God. Psalm 51 is beautiful language offered to the believer. Say this in the presence of your God. Here's here's a couple of verses from Psalm 51. David says, completely wash away my what? Guilt. Wash it away. Cleanse me from my sin. For I am conscious of my rebellion, and my sin is always before me. Now he's owning up to it, right? Against you, you alone, I have sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you are right when you pass sentence, and you are blameless when you judge. That's language, believer, that you can use when you've sinned against God. And John, by the way, in the New Testament, is a fan of confessing our sins. He says it. We're going to look at it later on in chapter 1, verse 9. Confess your sins, and he's faithful and just. Repentance is a beautiful thing. Owning up to what's wrong in us and what we've done wrong is a beautiful and right thing. Just put this in perspective. I'm going to say something that I hope is not controversial. It's fairly obvious. When Christians disobey God, the Holy Spirit doesn't say, that was awesome. That was a great moment in your life when you rebelled against God's word. What does the Holy Spirit say? That's messed up. That's not okay. What you just said, that attitude, that's not right. And to reject the voice of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, is to sear your conscience, which is a bad thing in the New Testament. When you suppress conviction, you're not battling legalism, you're in rebellion. All right, so the New Testament doesn't want to soft sell the impact of, of sin, unrepentant sin in our lives. So sometimes our guilt is telling us the truth. But, but hear this. Here's the distinction. The voice of conviction is not the same as the voice of condemnation. The voice of conviction is the loving ministry of the Holy Spirit calling you away from something that's going to kill you, calling you away from what's destructive and destroying you, away from what can't satisfy. John, to bring it all around, all the way around, right? John is not talking about the Holy Spirit's ministry of conviction here, which is needed in our lives. He's talking about the inner criticism that proclaims a gospel of try harder, That's what he's going after here, which is not a gospel, by the way. A gospel of try harder is not a gospel. The inner critic that's saying that is not telling you good news. It's telling you the truth of the gospel. It's telling you basically moralism. Moralism, you might just, I just think moralism is pull yourself togetherism. Moralism is get your act togetherism. Moralism says that we can earn or keep God's favor by our good works. And what happens when moralism gets into our ears and into our hearts and into our bloodstream as a church, when we embrace that pull-yourself-togetherism as the central message of the, of the faith, what happens is this. Moralism creates two kinds of Christians. The arrogant 
and the weary. It, it creates two kinds of Christians, the arrogant and the weary. So the arrogant love God's commands in such a way as they think that they're pulling them off. They think we're actually doing this stuff and, and to prove it that the arrogance is there, they look around at the rest of us and say, what's wrong with you clowns? Like, why can't you figure this out? Why can't you pull your act together the way I pulled my act together? Which isn't all on me. I mean, the Holy Spirit's helped. But, hey, I'm free of all these areas that you guys are still in bondage to. And so you see this arrogance. You see that so often in the pages of the Gospels when Jesus is on the case of the Pharisees. And, and he gives the clear impression, he means to leave them with the impression in John chapter 9, that they are the real blind ones. He's just healed a blind man. And that they are morally blind. And they pick up what he's laying down. And they say, wait, surely you're not suggesting that we're blind. And Jesus said, no, if you were blind, I could heal you. But because you think you see, your blindness remains. Your sin remains. It's because you think you don't need a savior. In other words, Jesus was saying, there's, there's only a world full of sinners. And I came to save sinners. You guys just don't think you're in that crowd. That's your biggest problem. Several years ago, I heard a very prominent worship leader being interviewed in a panel discussion, and this particular discussion was about what songs should be chosen for the singing of the congregation there that this worship leader served. And here's, here's what she said. We don't do songs that are sad, focused on the depths of despair. I know David had mournful songs, so notice, with one quick swipe of the hand, there goes the book of Psalms, right? I know David had some sad songs right back there in the Old Testament, but when we're in worship, it's really hard to keep the focus on God when we keep singing about ourselves. She means our pain, our sadness, because she goes on to say this, songs we have like rain down, where we change the words. It said, my heart is dry. Well, my heart is not dry, so we didn't want to sing that. We just like singing praise and joyfulness. And I heard that and I said, well, it must be awesome to be you. <laughs> like, do those spiritual awesome pants come in 3230s? Because, <laughs> but what, more seriously, what I really wanted to say is, I'm glad you're not dry. You might be tomorrow, but what about your brothers and sisters? Like, what if they're having a hard time and barely hanging on, and you edited out the one line that fills in their story of what they're experiencing right now? You took that one line, you airbrushed over it, you took out the one line that had real pain in it. Carl Truman, one of today's greatest, I think, church historians, he wrote an article several years ago about the laments in the Psalms, and the name of the article was, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? And the answer was, Miserable Christians Can Pick a Psalm, because they are so laden with human experience, real depth of despair and agony and pain. They aren't written from clouds of praise and joyfulness. They're written from real life. The church can be a place of hope, but not if we pretend that everybody's all right. If we're pretending the place, the church is just a place of superficiality where we just play games and, and pretend 
we're all hiding the color of our rings because we don't want anybody to see. I feel shame before God. I feel dirty before God. I feel unclean and guilty before God. But I don't want you to know that. So, so when that question comes around small group, I'm doing great, doing great. I'm kind of struggling in my prayer life, but I'm doing great. That's, that's how a church gets nowhere. I met Arthur, an author named Barbara Duguid several years ago, and uh, she has a unique gift. Without sucking the air out of the room or creating anything awkward, she has a way of just kind of clearing the fog of superficiality. Like, superficiality just runs from this woman. And she walks in, and everything, she, you just feel safe to, to talk about whatever's ailing you, whatever's burdening you, and she's, she's that way personally, but she's also that way in her writing. And here's one of the things that she said. I teach women's Bible studies. It is a common occurrence to have someone in the group confess their struggle and weakness in a certain area, only to be rebuked and censured by a sister in Christ who eagerly shares three easy ways they can overcome their problem. Phrases like, just ask Jesus to help you every time you feel angry and he will take the feeling away. One of my favorite authors, the late David Pallison, said, if I could take one word out of the Christian faith, it would be the word just. Just, just do this. Yeah, just do that. Take the word just out. That's not realistic. He, she goes on to say, one young woman thought she was helping me in my struggle with obesity when she said, all I did was pray every time I put food in my mouth and I lost 100 pounds. <laughs> I'm sure this will work for you too if you will just discipline yourself to do it. Do good rights. Instead of feeling encouraged, I felt more defeated than ever. And then she says this, simplistic answers to complex problems are discouraging to weary strugglers and downright annoying. I'm so glad she added a little stinger at the end, right? It's just annoying and it's wearisome. It's wearisome to believers who are having a hard time. Pull yourself togetherism doesn't work. That's not Christianity. When, when your worst enemy is you, you need another voice. You need an outside advocate against your inside prosecutor. You need, in addition to what you're hearing with the voice of condemnation, number two, you need the voice of God. You need the voice of God. John says, look there, re reassure our hearts before him whenever, not if, when, our hearts condemn us. God is greater than our hearts and he knows all things. Now just pause there for a second because that phraseology of when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. Some interpreters in the history of the church took those words as a warning. They took it as a kind of negative thing, right? That this is talking about, John is talking about the depth of our sin. Basically, in other words, on that interpretation, John is saying, if your heart condemns you, imagine the case an all-knowing God would make about you. He knows all things. You know the tip of the iceberg of your own sin. He knows the size of the whole glacier. But that view, that interpretation hasn't carried the day in church history and up to today. And the reason, I think, is pretty obvious if we just look at the context. So, Clearly, in context, John is seeking to comfort believers. 
with an afflicted conscience. He wants, verse 19, he wants to, you see that word, reassure our hearts before him. That's what he's gunning for, reassurance of the heart. Verse 21, he says, the result of quieting your condemning heart is confidence. You see that word there? That's what he's aiming at. He wants this church confident in prayer. That's what he ends up going practically is confidence in prayer, confidence in your communion with God. Christian friend, so think about what is John saying there when he says your heart condemns you, but God is greater than your heart and he knows all things. So now we have to ask the question, then what is this thing that God knows that brings reassurance to the believer? And the thing that God knows that reassures the believer is the gospel. It's his, Paul uses that phrase, it's God's gospel. It's his message that he's given to us, a message of good news. And what does the gospel say? What does the gospel voice announce? In the gospel, God says to sinners who have only trusted in Jesus, he says, you're justified. Once and for all, we're good. I brought your end time judgment into the present and announced it here. I'm not going to change that. I've announced that we're right. You're right with me. You're righteous in my sight because of the finished work of my son at the cross. That's the thing God knows, that if we hear that voice in our ears and in our hearts, it creates reassurance of the heart. It gets your self-condemning heart off your back because it's gospel assurance. So I'm putting one of the application points here. Sometimes we'll put them all at the end, so Brook Hills. I'm putting one of them right here, and it's this. Don't let your enemy preach a half gospel. Don't let your enemy preach a half gospel. Don't let your enemy simply say that you have sinned against a holy God. True enough, who would object to that? Of course I've sinned against a holy God. And those who sin against a holy God deserve judgment. That's also true. Biographers of, of Martin Luther, the man who lived in the 1500s, a Protestant reformer, often capture this exchange because Luther had a prohibitive conscience and he battled with internal condemnation. And it goes like this. Satan said to Martin Luther, oh, you are a sinner. Yes, replied Luther, and Christ died to save sinners. <laughs> Look, doesn't that feel, just reading that, doesn't that feel like rock under your feet? You are a sinner, Mason. You have sinned against God. You're absolutely right. I can't object in any way. That's the absolute truth of it. But Christ died to save sinners. And I trust him. I trust that his cross is enough. I'm not looking to myself. I'm not diving down into the quarters of my own heart and mind and actions and motives. I'm looking up and out to the one who came from the outside to save, as Luther said, extra nos, who comes from outside to save us. If that's the background track of your life, you will live not with your head down, but your head up in confidence before the God who has saved you in Christ. You'll live in the good of Romans 8. One will be the soundtrack of your life. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Solid rock beneath your feet. And assurance of salvation, friends, is not gonna make us sin more 
Assurance of salvation is going to make us sin less because all of our motivation for following Jesus is rooted in his grace toward us. It changes our whole perspective. Now there's gratitude and gratefulness and joy in his presence and confidence to go before his throne of grace. That's my throne. That throne of grace is for me because of the work of Christ. Here's how the Christian life works. The Spirit brings us to the end of ourselves, and then he shows us Christ. The Holy Spirit brings us to the end of ourselves, and then he shows us Christ. And he has to bring us to the end of ourselves, or else we'll become Pharisees. We'll think, I am pulling this off. I'm doing a great job. What's wrong with the rest of you? Friends, if we're boasting in ourselves, our Christianity is malfunctioning. Something's deeply wrong in our understanding of the gospel. To come to the end of ourselves is to realize we're not going to ever be acceptable in the presence of a holy God based on our own goodness, based on our own spiritual performance, which produces the fruit of what? Humility. Humility is the fruit, right? So the Holy Spirit, without crushing us, leads us to where we see, we see our sin, we see what Christ has done to save us, and we, he leads us to confess our sin and turn from it. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, bound up in three things. He leads us to see our sin, to see our Savior who died for us, and then to lead us to repentance, to lead us to turn from sin and confess our sin, which is why the next point is this. Confession is the path to freedom. John is, loves the gospel, whole New Testament loves the good news, but John is not averse and doesn't want the Christian to be averse to owning up to our sin. Flip back over just, just for a second to chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8, basically tells you that you're going to live fighting against indwelling sin for the rest of your life until you see Jesus. Verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Okay, so then we're not going to be without the stuff, so what do we do with it? Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christian friend, humility is a powerful, powerful thing. What did Jesus say? He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does the New Testament teach? But that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Luther again said that humility is, is like water, right? And water runs to the lowest place. So so when we're humble before God, here comes God's kindness to us in that lowly place of confession and repentance. I love what Ray Ortland said about this. He said, when we hide our sins, God drags them out in the open. When we drag our sins out in the open, God hides them behind the cross. Man, man, that is good news. Now some of you, are, are sluggish in your faith right now. 
You know how after you have a, a fever or a fever is coming on and it's just like your body's not working, it's just sluggish. There's this residual ache all over the place. Well, some of you are sluggish in your faith, sluggish in your obedience, and you don't know why. And there could be several possible reasons why, but for some of you, and I'm gonna focus on this one because I think it's John's point here. For some of you, what's gumming up the engine of your faith is you don't understand the greatness of the grace of God. You don't get grace. You lack assurance. You're looking to your self-improvement, self-salvation project for assurance. And that's not going to work, right? The Apostle Paul asks this question, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? If God has justified us, who shall condemn us? Find a higher court, is what Paul is saying. And he won't allow us to say, my heart is a higher court than Almighty God. That's just Paul's point. There is no higher court. So if your little prosecuting heart says you're condemned and God has said you're justified, God wins. God's declaration trumps everything. And John is singing the same song here. There's a higher court than your heart. When your heart condemns you, God is greater than your heart. He knows all things. Don't let your heart preach a half gospel. Yes, I've sinned. And Christ died for sinners. Three voices John talks about. The voice of condemnation, the voice of God, and finding your voice in prayer. Finding your voice in prayer. John is going to connect assurance to the free and unrestrained access that the believer is meant to have into the presence of God in prayer. Look at verse 21 and 22 where he lands it. Dear friends, if our hearts don't condemn us, and that's the monkey he's been trying to get off their back. If our hearts don't condemn us, what happens? We have confidence before God and receive whatever we ask. There's prayer. Whatever we ask from him because we keep his commands and do what is pleasing in his sight. Now, even when I read that, you might be thinking, yeah, but here are the commands again. Here's the commands and the what's pleasing in his sight, and then we get answers to prayer because we've done all the stuff. But look, you need to remember what we've talked about leading up to this week. And that is that John's burden is to say, I'm not saying to you, church, I'm not saying your obedience wins you salvation. I'm saying your salvation creates a new heart, a new life, new access to God, new obedience, new desires. So that's the fruit, not the root of your salvation. It's the fruit of your salvation. That's what John's talking about here. Now we want to obey him. All John is saying here is basically this, real prayer grows out of a life that loves the Lord. It's not mantras and formulas to 
twist God's arm to do what we want him to do, even though we could give a rip about God, but we want the stuff he's got, so we're using prayer like a mantra to get the stuff he's got. That's not real prayer. John says, no, it's a flag on the play. That is not how this, that's not how this works. John says in the same letter, chapter 5, verse 14, I'll read it to you, this is the confidence we have before him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So put 514 together with what we're looking at here, and it's this. Christian prayer is this, we receive what we ask because we ask in accordance with his will. And what does the believer want in our text in chapter 3, verse 22? The believer wants to keep his commands. The believer wants to do what is pleasing in his sight. Doesn't mean we're going to arrive there with perfection, but that's what we want. We've been given a new heart. His seed is within us. That's what we want. This isn't someone using prayer or using God as a means to our own ends. John is cutting that off at the pass. But there is a beautiful dynamic at work here in our text, and it goes something like this. It's in your notes. Assurance generates obedience, and obedience generates prayer. Assurance generates obedience, and obedience generates prayer. At the end of the day, there's a blessing that is held out by our text. 1 John 3, 19 through 22 is handing you something. And what's it handing you? It's handing you here. This is the gift of an untroubled conscience because you're convinced of the grace of God. And then here's a gift that that affects. A gift that grows out of that is you have a gift of free and unrestricted communion with God in prayer. What is the thing that God wants the most in saving us? He wants relationship. He, he wants, is it the way it started? He walked with Adam in the cool of the garden. So Brooke Hills, just gonna give you one sentence and then I'm gonna unpack it for a few minutes. Listen well and encourage deeply. Listen well and encourage deeply. And I have a negative example and a positive example. Um, I know a man who used to be a pastor a couple of decades ago. And each Sunday morning, he would have the same routine. He would call his small pastoral staff into his office. They would begin to pray. In just a moment, I know this man very, very well. He would call them into his office, and he would say the same thing every Sunday. He would open his Bible, and he would smile, and he'd say, I'm going to get them this Sunday. And by get them, he meant convict, corner, badger, berate. And the them is the church. The them is the flock. I'm going to get them this morning. Apparently confusing the instructions that Jesus gave to Peter, which weren't beat the sheep, but feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. Church can get like that. Moralistic churches can get like that. Pharisaical churches that turn away from the central message of good news and the gospel can get that way. And it can get that way all into the weeds of our everyday lives as we live together in community. So somebody starts, let's go to your small group, somebody starts to confess an area that they're struggling with and they've been struggling for a long time and it got really ugly this week or they're sharing and confessing an area of deep shame. Or, or deep suffering in their lives. And four of Job's friends come parachuting in, right? With three easy answers. 
been there, done that, do this, everything's going to be good. So now you've got seven days before you report back to us and we hear a story of freedom. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait for seven days from now, right? We're holding timers over each other's heads. Brooke Hills, either Jesus is the hero or it isn't a gospel. If Jesus isn't the hero, we've got some other main thing. We've lost the main thing that is in the center of God's word. We can't call it a gospel if the people have to rescue themselves. That's what John is getting at, right? We want to encourage deeply. So on the positive side, we have a friend who just this week, uh, life just came crashing down on this woman and created a tremendously stressful moment for her. And um, she didn't hide her ring and what it was revealing. She, first thing Wednesday, I get a text and I see that 20 other people have been sent this same text, and here's what it said. Friends, I'm so scared. Will you please send over your favorite verses or quotes about not being afraid, about how God always comes through? And within seconds, my phone is an hour later, Lighting up, hour and a half later, lighting up. Text after text after text. Here are a few of them. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold on to you with my righteous right hand. The Lord is the one who will go before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Cling to what is good. For I am the Lord your God who holds your right hand, who says to you, do not fear, I will help you. And this is God speaking in the first person, Psalm 91. Because he has set his heart on me, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls out to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and give him honor. One after another, after another, the screen is just lighting up with God's word. And all the texts were, good news, he's with you. He knows he's with you, friend, he's going to honor you. He's going to strengthen you, just pouring on encouragement. And one after another after another, and I'm looking at that, and I'm thinking, who wouldn't flourish if the church was that kind of environment? I mean, who would feel oppressed by that kind of ethos and culture in the church. So I finish with this quote from Burke Parsons. Never give up on someone. Never stop praying for them. Even those who seem the most helpless. Even when that someone is us. Even when those, even those who seem most helpless. Even when that someone is us. Before I close in prayer, I'd like to just do something a little bit different. If we could sing, just with our voices, no music accompanying us, but just sing something that we sang earlier in our gathering. And I want you, as we sing it, to think about all the assurance that is packed into these words. Think about that as we sing this together. No fate I dread. 
I know I am forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon. And he was raised to overthrow the grave. Sing this out. To this I hold, my sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Oh, the chains are released. I can sing. I am free, yet not I, but through Christ.